Atropos. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, when the world declines in righteousness, you know what happens then, don't you? We ignore it. <laughs> this is True Crime Uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear program. is produced by Magic Matt Allen, a true programming genius. Our fact checker is Mark C.G. Boyer. Our co-host is not here again today. He's got deep-rooted family problems he's taking care of. More power to him. That's a line from... Uh, I have a feeling, Burrow, that yeah. he's going to have family problems. Yes, until, unfortunately, his mother goes to the great beyond. Sad story. Uh, well, you know another sad story is prosecutorial... I can't even say it. Prosecutorial misconduct. No, yes, prosecutorial misconduct. Did you know there are four kinds of prosecutorial... Uh, Procedural ham, uh, prosecutorial misconduct. I bet John Farrick knows. I like John Farrick. He writes cool books. Like some of my favorite true crime books written by John Farrick. And I think we have him on the line. Hey, you on the line like a mackerel? Hey, Burl. Good to hear from you again. How you doing? Better and better every day in every way, as Emil Kuwait would say. Uh, you and I both have a strange obsession. Prosecutorial misconduct. <laughs> Yeah, we've certainly had our share of books uh, that have dealt with uh, yeah. with some of those issues, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, I was just telling Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, that the fact that there are four kinds, it's kind of like, you know, trick cereal. You know, you got orange, orange, lemon, yellow. <laughs> <laughs> They're magically delicious. <laughs> there they are, yeah. Uh, offering inadmissible evidence in court, suppressing evidence from the defense, encouraging deceit from witnesses, and bluffing threats or intimidation. Well, we can find all of those. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to look far. We can... I'll tell you, John, years ago, I don't know how many years ago, it was quite a while back, several years, uh, got a book in the mail with a weird, weird cover on it, it's bright green, by Michael Griesbach. Oh, jeez. Okay, I know where you're going. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. and uh, it was about this uh, Avery case which read really weird, so I had Michael on the show. And uh, he laid this whole thing out. I said, that's the weirdest damn story I've heard in ages. And then we got into an argument about phase two, in which Doris gets her oats. Uh, no, phase two in which, uh, <laughs> in which he's arrested again. We're talking about Stephen Avery. Now, let me get this straight. We put the lime in the coconut. Back in uh, 2016, 17, you were working for USA Today Networks, Wisconsin? Yes, that's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were writing about the Stephen Avery thing, right? So you were in on from the right, get Right, all the, all the time. I was probably having uh, nightmares, <laughs> dreams, uh, probably once or twice a week about the case, too. You know how that goes. But yeah, uh, anyhow. I, I do, yes. <laughs> That's one of the sidelights of being a true crime author is you have nightmares about your books. <laughs> right, like Phil Champlain and everything. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what did you what did you discover in your <laughs> in your adventures in the world of Avery? Well, and it was interesting too because yeah, I was familiar with Mike Griesbach uh, just from my my time up in Wisconsin and uh, and uh, had had familiarity with his book and uh, you know and his. You know, version of events, and from what I remember, he basically vouched for Steve Avery as far as this is a poor guy that was really, you know, railed by the um, criminal justice system in Manitowoc County. But then, 
um, Griesbach took this opposite position that uh, that the guy just happened to decide to become a deviant monster and murderer. Yeah, all of a sudden. Know, while he was waiting to get his $35 million. That would have Wasn't that an amazing him. coincidence so, just when yeah, he's about Warren to get $35 above, million? Dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that he's just going to um, decide on Halloween uh, to lure, uh, you know, the photographer who's basically on the property, you know, um, every week or so usually that Teresa Hallbuck had been out there numerous times so, you know it wasn't like uh, she just showed up there and uh, and, and, and Avery just uh, his eyeballs lit up uh, I mean the whole family was familiar with her she was familiar with, with them and had no qualms about going out there at all and uh, and and you're right. So Greaseback then writes this book saying, "Well, you know, this poor guy really got taken advantage of, uh, you know, for all these years, and uh, and finally gets out of prison after serving 18 years that he didn't do. He's waiting to get 35 million dollars, and then he became a deviant monster. And well, there's some evidence that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But uh, but let's just give the local police the best of the doubt. Yeah, that they yeah, got it right yeah. Let's do that. Time around. Well, that presumption of innocence goes out the window here. Yeah, and, and so far, I mean, like I said, I, I get along with Mike. I haven't seen him, you know, oh, since sure, I moved too. away from Wisconsin three years ago. I thought he's a decent guy. Yeah. I mean, he's a lot uh, more noble than uh, than Ken Kratz, yeah, um, the prosecutor in the case. But yes. uh, but I just think that Mike, Mike, you know, I mean, kind of made a fool of himself uh, with his book, and I think he knows that. Yeah, I, we we uh, he's been on the show about three times, and all three times we wind up getting an argument about phase two. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but I got to credit the guy for doing what he did on phase one. Yeah, I do too, because he he was in that, uh, at, at that point in time, Mike was a local attorney in Manitowoc uh, and, and, you know, at the Manitowoc County Courthouse uh, as a pros prosecuting attorney. And he, to his credit, uh, rolled up his sleeves and was willing to call out Corruption and uh, injustice, and uh, and then just bullshit that was going on, uh, you know, at that local police department at that uh, courthouse, and uh, and uh, it, that had to be hard to do, uh, you know, in a small town like that. And I'm guessing he probably got a lot of blowback and pushback, and uh, probably uh, he had decided that uh, he better take one for the team and uh, yeah. <laughs> just kind of keep his mouth shut and you know, do a you know 180 uh, from here on out. Yeah, it's a difficult situation. This whole thing of prosecutorial misconduct would. Uh, I first encountered it in, in massive amounts in a case that I was working on. Uh, I mean, it was a case where the judges of the courtroom would stand up and scream about it. They go, "This case is going to be extended headache number eight hundred and fifty-one. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. Storm out of the courtroom." <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the defense attorney ran against the prosecutor for his position and won. And then he wound up mm -hmm. having heavy on the appeal, having to fight against his own. <laughs> It's very wow. <laughs> very strange. I think stuff. that kind of happened in the Ryan Ferguson case out of Missouri, which just became a Netflix uh, movie by uh, Kathleen Zellner, the same attorney in this case. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. A lot of times these district attorneys uh, or prosecutors uh, have higher aspirations, and, uh, and, you know, becoming a judge uh, or an appellate judge or a federal prosecutor is... Uh, you know, every, often, uh, every prosecutor that I've had on this show, I always ask them, have you ever been asked to prosecute someone? That you believed in your heart of hearts was innocent, and they all said yes. Yeah, that's interesting, and uh, and that's uh, and it takes a real prosecutor to stand up to the police. Yeah, you know, and basically uh, tell them, you know, no is no, you know, or, or enough is enough, and uh, and I'm not going to take this case because it's a bunch of BS, or you know, 
And uh, but there's some of these prosecutors out there, as, as you and I both know, bro, that, uh, that that are deviant and sly and uh, and and use a case for uh, you know for media gratification. And uh, and uh, I've and used a lot of really... things for media gratification, but I've never used a prosecutor. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess we all have our kinks, but that's not one of mine. Uh, <laughs> not the prosecutor. So tell us how you got into this and, and how you happened to do Wrecking Crew, which is the book I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so I was, uh, as you point out, I was in Wisconsin uh, for about uh, five years at that point, uh, from 2012 until uh, 2017. And, uh, and, and really, Making a Murderer came out. That was about four years ago. And really, when that uh, came out on Netflix, that was really probably the first real, you know, documentary that had come out on, on Netflix that really, you know, captured the public's attention as far as like a ten-part series. Right. And for a lot of people in Wisconsin obviously knew about the case, but but a lot of people around the country and you know around the globe, world didn't know shit about uh, the Steve Avery case, and they were really enthralled by the docu-series and uh, really wanted to learn more more and more about the case. So I was in a position where where I had I actually had some pretty good bosses at that point in time, and, and they really just gave me the green light, just told me to just work on this case full time, you know, and uh, do whatever I needed to do to uh, just keep chipping away, try to do an investigative story, usually about once a week, just to uh, really uh, you know take the case apart, and uh, and they really didn't tell me. You know that I had to you know, tr try to find stories to you know prove Steve Avery is innocent, or find stories that you know prove that he's guilty. Just do my own thing, and the more I did, bro, you know, the more I uncovered that just really looked like the case was all you know. Um, Bunch of nonsense. Yeah, I, yeah, it, was, it just smelled really bad. I mean, the more you got into it, and uh, and 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 what was interesting is that. I basically figured out that, that this was probably part of the culture in that police department because I just always found it amazing how the police were able to basically have a search warrant, again, from a local, I mean, a good judge or a crooked judge, it's up to, you know, the blisters of the show to determine, but uh, but, a lo but basically they, had a, they got a search warrant for Avery's salvage yard that let them stay on the property for about 10 days straight. Oh, wow. And that just never happens, even in the OJ case. I mean, I don't think the police got to stay at uh, Brentwood, uh, you know, for just 10 days nonstop. And this was, as, as, as you probably remember just from watching the show, but uh, the salvage yard itself is about 40 acres. Mm. So it, it's and there was about three thousand junk junk cars I think at the time on the property. So it's a big piece of property, but but the area where they were concentrating their searches really wasn't that big. So the fact that you had the police out there for eight or nine days straight and there was really no check or balance, there wasn't a defense attorney. You know, the Avery family really wasn't allowed to be on the property. It just opened it up for all kinds of monkey business, you know, and uh, and corruption and evidence planting or evidence tampering. You know, by the police, and again, the, the who's who's doing the work. You know, it's it's two or three local departments, but one of the ones that's doing most of the work, you know, was the same Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office that had already rigged a case against him. You know, and got him uh, wrongly convicted 18 years earlier, and several of these same people that were out there collecting evidence and uh, and uh, directing the the crime scene were defendants in Avery's federal lawsuit that he was clearly going to win or settle for probably, you know, 10 to $15 million, uh, you know, without a doubt, for the 18 years that he got screwed uh, by the sheriff in that town. Yeah, even uh, 
Geronimo Pratt only got 16.5 from the FBI when they framed him. Yeah, and then, like I said, I mean, I did a story, and that was one of those stories I did, too, was uh, I tracked down, like, all Innocence Project slash wrongful conviction settlements, you know, over the last 10 years or so, and just to kind of give, give, give readers for the USA Today a, a story that basically said, here's the going rate, you know, for somebody <laughs> like Steve Avery that was convicted of rape, or, you know, here's what people that have served, you know, 10 to 15 years for a murder conviction or rape conviction they didn't commit. Here's, here's how much they've settled for, or, you know, all over the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like I said, I think the, the average was, at that point in time, somewhere between 12 and $15 million. Um, so it was a sure thing. It was a sure thing that Avery was going to get a significant amount of money. And his case was really heating up right around the same time that Teresa Hallbeck disappeared on Halloween of 2005. The case was already two years in in the federal court system. They had just done um, video depositions of all the sheriff's personnel just over the previous month before this, and things just really were looking bad. These guys, uh, you know, just really looked terrible on the video. Uh, they, they, uh, um, nobody had a good explanation about why Steve Avery was even, you know, a legitimate suspect in the case. I mean, the guy had an alibi. Um, that he was at uh, um, at a, a store in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Do it was called Shopco. I don't think they're even in business anymore. But uh, but anyway, it was it was a department store slash grocery store, and um, you know, in spite of all that, uh, <laughs> the poor guy got convicted at a jury trial. You know, um, the first time around, right. he got railroaded by the system. You know, and. Uh, and, and somehow, uh, right on the verge of him getting the settlement, is when Teresa Hallbach goes missing, and then all eyes get, you know, fingers get pointed back at him. By well, didn't, who, didn't they go in else? and search his place several times? Well, like the third time, they amazingly find her keys under his uh, dresser drawer. Yeah, that was. Yeah, weird. and it was. I, it, and actually, I think it was probably, if you counted up just the fact the number of times, Burl that they went into his little red trailer. Um, I think it was like seven times, if I'm not mistaken, because uh, they first showed up uh, to question him. Uh, I think it was on November. Um, it was a couple of days after she had uh, disappeared. And uh, but but by the time they um, by the time they actually got inside the apartment, or yeah, I mean inside the trailer, and they kept going back and kept going back. Um, it was around the seventh or eighth time, and. Um, I mean, the trailer's yeah, not that damn big. You think if you were going to find no, it, you would have found it already. Several, yeah, I've been out there several times to the property. I've never been inside the trailer, but I've been at, you know, I basically stood on the, you know, entrance right. steps of the trailer. But, uh, but it's yeah, it's not very big at all. And uh, it's, it, 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 it literally looks just like a giant shoebox, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it, the bedroom itself is very small. And, you, and again, the the same sheriff's personnel were in that same bedroom of his, you know, going through his uh, uh, his bookcase and uh, you know, looking around. Two days earlier, they were in there, you know, for about four or five hours. They were in there again the following day, and then uh, you know, they're coming, they're walking in and out uh, over the next couple of days, and then on this Tuesday morning, um, which would again be about a week or so after she had disappeared. You know, lo and behold, uh, you know they claim that they find a, a key, and it's a spare key. You know, it's it's so her real set of car keys. Interestingly enough, 
Burl have never been found to this day. So, I mean, whoever's the real killer, uh, you know, probably buried them or burned them or, you know, or did something right. to, to, you know, get rid of them or hide them. But, uh, but no, this was a spare key. It was an extra key. And it was on uh, it, was, it was on a small part of a lanyard, but uh, but you know for them, planting that evidence in his bedroom was was very important because then they they were desperate for evidence, and uh, and and now they could at least say they found some evidence that uh, can connect Steve Avery definitively to uh, the missing. Uh, that, that always amazed me because they were in there so many times and didn't find anything. How did they find, where did this thing come from? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it either was, uh, you know, manufactured at a local hardware store or more likely just probably like a few cars that I had over the years. You know, it, you had an extra you know, key that you either kept in your you know, wallet or your purse or in your glove, glove compartment right. box probably for a vehicle. I'm thinking it was probably in her glove box or, you know, in her, in her, in her vehicle. And uh, since they found her vehicle... They probably found that thing, you know, that extra key, you know, there, and uh, or they found it back at her place, you know. I mean, so I mean, the point is, they have several days right. to plan this out, you know, and in, in, in the you know, be methodical about it. So that's why, again why I think that it was so important that they found. So they kept going. Why were they going back in and in, in going back in Burl if if they had already gone through the place and you know found no evidence? I mean, the only way you'd be going back in at that point in time is to probably be snooping around to figure out how you're going to plant something if right. you really want to frame this guy for the crime. It's, it's, it's as if the millions were coming out of their personal pocket. Excuse me, personal pocket. Right. I'd be upset. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Well, to the these? thing is, too, it was a two for two because once you once you arrested Steve Avery for the murder, it basically destroyed his federal lawsuit that he had against the local sheriff's department, you know, and, uh, you know, and the former sheriff and, and the former sheriff, he had been in that office for like 20, 25 years. He had basically hired everybody that was working on this case. And, and, uh, he was still kind of well known in the community. And, uh, and even in spite of the fact that, uh, you know, that he was being sued and, uh, you know, over Avery and had been, you know, determined, you know, that he had framed the guy. There still were a lot of people around town that didn't like the Averys and uh, were probably okay with uh, Tom Kasork, uh, you know, not getting, you know, not going bankrupt, uh, you know, for... Uh, uh, he must be guilty of something, yeah. Bad attitude. He's guilty of something. He must be... Yeah, I mean... Uh, you talk, you're talking about uh, Kasarik, uh, the sheriff, then? No, I'm talking about how people's attitude towards the Averys. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, he right, must right. be guilty exactly. of something. That's how, you're right. Especially in a small town, an area like that, uh, you know, the Averys, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I've, I've met them. I've been out on the property several times, and I think they're pretty good people. And uh, but, there's a, but there's certainly some people that kind of look down upon them and, uh, and thumb their nose at them, and, uh, and that's unfortunate, but but I'm sure that's true in pretty much every state, you know, state yeah. in the United States. So, uh, but it was certainly true around Mattawak County, which was a, which is a, you know, very rural, you know, farming, just slash blue collar, you know, um, type of, uh, you know, type of community. And uh, so you have a lot of people. Everybody kind of knows everybody, and uh, you know, people pick and choose, you know, who's their friend and who's their adversary. Right. They had that one pretty well chosen. 
Mm -hmm. Kind of reminds me of the, the structure of the evening news. They always have something that you can feel like you're better than somebody else. <laughs> you know, my life is better than theirs. You know, I'm okay. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, I mean, uh, even the people that really didn't know the facts of the cases, you know, involving Avery or, or Teresa Hullabuck, there probably were a lot of people that were hoping mm -hmm. that he was guilty, yeah. you know, or hoping that he had something to do with it, just uh, like you said, so they could kind of feel better about themselves or, you know, just reinforce their own belief and opinion that they already had about uh, about the Avery family. Yeah, I always thought it was amazing that here he'd been at that shop going and had the receipts and everything that couldn't possibly have been, you know, anywhere else. And yet that didn't fly. I know, how do you, I mean, you just don't make those things up. And, you know, and, and granted, that was uh, 1985, so, the you know, you probably didn't have video surveillance cameras in those stores, but the fact is, you know, they bought their you know, whatever it was, their groceries or their items, uh, you know, that he bought there. I mean, there was there was, there was physical evidence, you know, um, mitigating evidence uh, that proved his innocence and basically would have made it impossible, you know, for him, you know, to, you know, drive, make the 30, 35-mile drive back from Green Bay, Wisconsin to Manitowoc, uh, you know, and then immediately, uh, you know, <laughs> decide to go to, to drive over to the, Lake Michigan, and then uh, and, and scope out the beach, and uh, you know, and attack uh, a prominent businesswoman while she's running in her bikini, uh, you know, going for a jog on Lake Michigan, uh, you know, uh, like that. Again, it just uh, it often occurred to me you know. to drive from Stevenson Ranch, California, there just just to chase her down, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that uh, there's no way that Steve Avery, I mean, should have even been treated as a legitimate suspect. You know, for that uh, for that crime, and uh, you know, as we know from making a murder, they already had a suspect. They already knew that it was probably a guy named uh, um, Allen, um, and the Allen guy had been uh, term yeah, Gregory Allen. Yeah, Gregory Allen, and and he, uh, you know, had been in and out of jail and prison for uh, you know for other uh, burglaries, and uh, you know, as a violent sexual predator. But the sheriff decided he didn't want to go after that guy. He was fine with letting him roam around. Well, yeah, let's you know, keep him on the loose so we can do so some can... more. Yeah, right, right. Just because he had a, you know, he had a vendetta or a hard on whatever you want to say <laughs> to, to get Steve Avery and just nail the son of a bitch. Uh, you know, is, yeah. is basically the way he thought about it. So didn't work out too well for him in the long run. No, and uh, and that's just. The, but the one thing that still bothers me about the whole case, though, uh, Burl, is just. I mean, if you think about the bad guys in this case, you know, were a lot of the sheriff's personnel, and uh, and they they were able to evade justice, you know. And uh, I mean, none of them, you know, were convicted of a crime. None of them ever, uh, you know, had any monetary. Uh, judgment issued against them and uh i mean I, so i guess the only good thing that happened is that everybody in the world you know knows that the mantua county sheriff's office you know has had it's more than a share of corruption that these people are pretty dirty and slimy so so and the fact that we could talk about this on your show i think is a good thing so yeah, i guess there I is so you know, a little silver lining out of it it was interesting that when avery got out of prison he was so used to being in that confined space that he went up to where they do the ice fishing and got himself... Right. To, yeah, yeah, that was really weird. I thought, I mean, he was so used to being confined that being in the wide open spaces was very uncomfortable for him. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that's certainly a popular thing to do in Wisconsin. You know, to to have those they call them shanties. Uh, you know, put them on uh, like Lake Winnebago, which is really big. And uh, but yeah, just to kind of live in that environment is a little uh, little unusual. But that just goes to show you that uh, I mean, yeah, the poor guy. I mean, that became his life for about 20 years, and then just to throw him out into society, um, you know, really without any help uh, um, or psychological help. Yeah, he certainly struggled to adjust. You know, and his family, I mean, no doubt they welcomed him, were glad to have him back. But for them, you know, they still had a you know a, a business to run and uh you know and that was that's and, and that's a business that they had to really work hard just to just to you know just to try to make ends meet uh you know with that scrap scrapyard business and right. uh tow truck uh you know kind of stuff so yeah it's hard to readjust to something like that the trauma of it i mean the whole thing was without psychological counseling and help and all that sort of stuff and then on top of that to be charged with another murder must have just set him over the edge. I can't imagine what his state of mind would be. Yeah, and that's, again, why I always really struggled with Mike Griesbach's book as far as just how he he just decided to, you know, I mean, Mike's explanation, I think, was along the lines of, well, you know, it, you know, his time in prison must have just, you know, being in that environment caused him to snap. And uh, it's just... Uh, I just don't know why. Uh, I you know I just don't know if, if people put pressure on Mike to write the book that way, or whether he just uh, you know um, you know just came up with that on his own. I don't know. It really doesn't matter. I know his book didn't do that well, so uh, you know. Um, but uh, but it doesn't surprise me because again, it's it's just a, such a silly narrative. To, to put together for a book, you know, to say the guy's innocent for the first crime, but then, uh, then suddenly he's, he's just, guilty of the second one. Yeah, right. He's just, you know, he's just, he's just, uh, he's just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. And his check, his thirty-five million dollar check hasn't come in the mail yet, so he's just going to decide <laughs> just on can't Halloween wait, yeah. night uh, that he's going to commit this uh, this murder. That's like the perfect murder, you know, because he's not going to leave behind any physical evidence. No blood, no hair, you know, there's no semen or anything like that in his bedroom, but yet somehow he's going to leave a spare key on the floor, you know, and the police aren't going to be smart enough to pick it up for, like, the first five or six days that they're in his bedroom looking around for evidence, but yet then they're going to realize, well, we didn't check the floor good enough. We didn't look on the floor. the bookcase, Andy, you know? So... What so? Um, That's Mark Boyer there, our fact checker. Mark, what's the question? Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Her car was found on the lot, right? Yeah, the the vehicle was found on the very, very uh, kind of back area of the lot, and uh, there's there's several at that point in time. There was like two or three different. There was a there was a few different ways that you could get a vehicle onto the Avery property. And uh, and there was at that point in time there was they called it a conveyor road. I would just call it a dirt road, just for our listeners here. But uh, basically, there was a dirt road that ran at the far far edge of their property. Um, that basically um, the property line abutted um, a quarry. So and the guy's name that ran that quarry is his, his name is Josh uh, Rodant. And so it was called Rodan's Quarry. And basically, yeah, where the vehicle was found was kind of near, 
you know, this conveyor road and uh, and the very, very edge of the Avery property. And they had a bunch of vehicles already kind of stacked up on the far edge of their property, Mark. And uh, and this vehicle, even how it got put, it just, it, it, it was actually placed at a weird angle. It was kind of not the way the Averys, you know, had, had stacked all their other vehicles. Kind and, of stood out for and that reason, with, yeah. Yeah, and then come to find out that you had another, which I, I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, but uh, there had been uh, um, one of the neighbors, an older gentleman that lived near nearby, near this area, and, and the night before Hallbuck's vehicle was found, he remembered seeing a couple vehicles just driving in late at night, I think, uh, on, on, that, uh, on that conveyor road, uh, and, and he thought he saw two vehicles going in. And one coming out. But only one yeah. came out. Right. And again, at that point in time, the guy wasn't thinking about Steve Avery or Teresa Hallbuck being missing. He just noticed this was just weird, you know, or just it was unusual. That's why it caught his attention. Late at night, you know, you know two vehicles driving in, you know, to the property, you know, and, uh, but again... He passed that information on to the police, but obviously, well, they you know, no really didn't to go that. anywhere. No, you know, because probably, you know, possibly, you know, some of the police could have been in one of those vehicles. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, did the Averys have a car crusher? Um, a car crusher. I'm trying to remember now. Um, did they have a car crusher? I think they did. I thought they did on the yeah on on a different part of the property. I Doesn't they don't have man. one now, if I'm not mistaken. But but I think they did uh, okay, so have you, one in a different uh, different area on the property. If you're the Averys and you take the body and burn it to the fat to, to ashes, but you leave the car. <laughs> I mean, if you have a car crusher. You squish it into a cube, and that's the end of it. Right. That's the way, I mean, that's the way the mafia does it, you know, and that's the way probably a lot of that's other people would do it, too. Gold, so. Goldfinger uh, did. Yeah, Goldfinger. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> it worked for a James Bond movie. It would work for the Averys. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what yeah, happened so, to the, uh, the lawsuit against Netflix? Um... Nothing's become of it at all. I'm not. I'll. I'll have to double check as far as whether it's been thrown out yet. Um, I just know that it's it's on the verge of either being dismissed or it's it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, I think actually it's funny you mentioned that too because uh, I think Mike Griesbach actually was the lawyer that filed that on behalf of Andy Colburn, uh -huh. the Manitowoc County Sheriff's you know deputy, and uh, it just. Uh, Languished. I mean, it, you just can't sue somebody for. Uh, I mean, for. I mean, under those. I mean, for basically, you know, re, re, retelling, you know, what was already in court, um, you know, and uh, like I said, so I've talked to several people, and they they all told me that they kind of laughed at that lawsuit. They actually think it was probably a publicity stunt, you know, for Mike Griesbach, you know, just to kind of help, you know, help him, you know, with his with his book sales, uh, because uh, I mean. You didn't no reputable. You didn't have a reputable lawyer as far as uh, you know. A, you know, a liable law, law attorney take that case. It just if to be, it's uh, hard for it to be liable if it. you're going on court certified material. Then there were there are also some issues that I found out on uh, with the jury. How many members of the jury were affiliated with the court or the sheriff's department? Yeah, there were several. There were several, and uh, and uh, that just again. 
I was gone at the time of the trial. I was I was in Omaha, Nebraska, so I wasn't in Wisconsin at that point to cover the trial. But those are things that yeah I came across after the fact, like you did, and it just blew me away. As far as like you said, the number of people that had a connection to either the yeah employees of the courthouse or sheriff, you know, were connected or family members. Yeah. You know, of Mantua County Sheriff's personnel. So, so his attorney and, did a horrible. And then you had the fact that that one juror um, um, basically was excused from the jury, you know, right on the verge of del- deliberations. And he was the one that uh, was very vocal, you know, and adamant that he thought that the case against Steve Avery uh, wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't legitimate. Uh, that uh, told him to sit down and shut up. Right. What a bizarre situation. Uh, So um, his nephew was also arrested and convicted of participating in the alleged crime. Yeah. Yeah, Brendan Dassey, and he's still, uh, yeah, he's still in uh, custody, too, and uh, he's probably in worse shape um, just, uh, you know, based on the direction that his case went because it went... um, um, they tried to appeal uh, um, on different issues and uh, and basically on the on the confession. And that case, I think, ended up in front of. The, I mean, the Supreme Court refused. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to take up the case. Yes, of the, um, yeah. a year or so ago. So uh, Brendan Dassey's best hope at this point in time to get out is actually through Steve Avery. You know, if the case against Avery gets a new trial or an evidence hearing. Um, um, that's basically his his best hope at this point in time, then, Mark. Was his interrogation taped? Taped? Yeah, it was videotaped. Right. So, um, if you have the videotape, how can different courts look at the tape and and then and conclude differently that his confession was coerced? Well, I mean. I, it was it was unfortunate uh, that I was kind of shocked, but it was a split ruling. I think first he was first you had the court of appeals that I think the Seventh Circuit out of Chicago decided two to one in Brendan's favor, and then the Wisconsin Attorney General at the time was able to you know convince the court to uh, basically have an in bank hearing, which which basically means that the entire court of appeals would hear the evidence on the case. And uh, and they did, and then it went. Uh, I think as a four to three ruling right. against Dave or against Brendan, um, and uh, you had a very divided court. And it kind of surprised me actually. There was one one justice, one of the judges, was really outspoken against Brendan as far as, and he just was totally pro police. I just think that he's really doesn't have much experience dealing with the criminal justice system as far as the shady the shady side of it goes. And, uh, and, and that justice's name was Hamilton, and he was actually an Obama appointee. So it really surprised me that you would have somebody that, like Obama, had picked for the courts, probably turned out to be about as far, you know, right wing, you know, on the, on this case specifically, you know, and kind of hard headed and uh, you know, and unsympathetic to Brendan, you know, than than any, anybody on the court of appeals, and it just was really a. Uh, um, uh, it just kind of, you know, I mean, angered me to watch, you know, you know, these, this judge just really didn't seem to be, uh, 
um, swayed by Andy arguments. In fact, Mark, his point was he just seemed to be convinced because like they basically didn't beat up Brendan. You know, they weren't like screaming at him or like you know trying to you know uh, you know um, you know taser him or anything like that. He just thought because they were so peaceful toward him that in his mind that must have meant it was okay. Everything that happened was okay. Oh well, yeah, but know? it doesn't so work everything. like that in real life. <laughs> especially, I know that. You know that. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, the, the 1950s are over. They don't uh, you know tie people up to chairs anymore. Whack them with uh, a phone know, book. Like, yeah, hit them with uh, yeah electric uh, you know electric shock therapy. You know to get them to confess to you know 50 murders and stuff. I mean those. But but yeah, in this case, Brendan was very slow, development developmentally disabled. You know, a slow learner. You know, and uh, and and they basically pretended like they were his dad and and and, and his uncle, and uh, you know, befriended him, thinking that uh, that all he's got, all they want him to do is repeat, basically, you what know, their him. version of events, yeah. and uh, and they'd have it on videotape, and uh, and and again, no one. They knew the jury system and they knew the jury pool. They just knew that that would be good enough to win, and they were right. You know, so uh, because they got a. You know, I mean, the poor kid got stuck with a you know crappy judge, and and he got that horrible attorney, that Len Kaczynski, that was selling him out. That was even worse than the prosecutors in this case. You know, I I see this all, all too often. You know, in my years of writing true crime, and so have you. I think the American public is naive as to how horrifying prosecutorial misconduct is in the United States. I, I mean, right. I was shocked. I, I think you're right on that, bro. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it only comes up as far as in the public arena, you know, when a big case like this happens, uh, you know, where people hear about it. But just, yeah, the prosecutor, prosecutors, as you know, for the most part, you know, have blanket immunity. They don't have – the public doesn't have an opportunity to sue them as co-defendants in lawsuits the same way that they can – you know, police officers, or you know, you know, you know, crime scene specialists that are faking evidence or planting evidence. Oh yeah, uh, you had a great uh, book on that too. I got to compliment you on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah, that that's uh, it's coming up. Uh, that case is uh, not the book, but that case is coming up on the the ten year anniversary this year of uh, of Dave Culpin going to prison, getting convicted for planting evidence in Nebraska. Yeah, the Bloody Lies book. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, that was a hell of a story and very upsetting. I mean, if you can't trust your CSI guy, who can you trust? Right. Yeah, and that's the thing that, uh, like you said, the public too often is just naive, you know, and uh, just either doesn't want to believe this happens or or isn't doesn't have the wherewithal to understand that these kinds of things happen. But uh, but you do have people like you started out with this show, like Ken Kratz, the prosecutor in this case, a guy that was just a glory hound, really had no. You know, no, I mean, his resume wasn't anything impressive. You know, I mean, he didn't handle murder cases at all, be, just based on the fact that he was a prosecutor in a small dairy, dairy community, so there wasn't much activity going on. But yet he's able to kind of use this case to constantly, uh, you know, give himself all kinds of television coverage and press and, uh, you know, and make a name for himself and then go around, you know, doing interviews with Nancy Grace you know, all the time to, uh, you know, just to build up his ego. When in reality, you have to ask yourself, is the guy just a total fraud to begin with, you know? You know, the thing about, you mentioned Nancy Grace, I had a prosecutor on here who, who said he, that uh, Nancy Grace was talking about the blood found in the car, and he goes, what blood? <laughs> <laughs> He's screaming at the TV, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... 
There's that trial by talk show. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, 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 and that's kind of what this case was, I think, the first time around, or at least the, the trial for, uh, for Avery on the murder case. It was kind of a trial by talk show, or at least trial by TV show, because, uh, yeah, Ken Kratz, the prosecutor, had done so many TV interviews and press conferences uh, to uh, basically make it almost impossible for Avery to get a fair yeah, that's the real problem. If you, try, if you try to get a change of venue, that's not always going to work either, especially if it's on national television. Right. Yeah. And uh, so poor Avery, I can think of this case. Yeah, he, he just he rolled with the punches, so to speak, and uh, you know, and he still gets a jury, you know, with a handful of family members or connections to the sheriff's office, and uh, you know, and the rest is history now. Now I was just reading an article by uh, this guy who'd been a prosecutor in uh, New Orleans. And he said, to suggest, as the court did, that internal mechanisms sanction misbehaving prosecutors is to engage in fantasy. In a prosecutorial culture that turns a blind eye to such conduct, internal accountability is simply non-existent. That's scary. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and again, it's one of those things that, like you said, people, by and large, aren't really talking about this on a daily basis or thinking about it. Uh, and uh, But yet, you and I both know, and Mark does too, that this goes on fairly regularly, and it doesn't just happen in New Orleans or Louisiana, but it probably happens in every state. Uh, you know, and it certainly happens probably in states where there's, you know, Less news media coverage, or you know, or you know, less of a you know, population, uh, probably similar, you know, to a uh, Mantua County, you know, just as much as it happens in a New York City, you know, or, would, or, or me, you know, Chicago. It would seem to me it would be easier in a small setting uh, to get away with it because there's no one to to, to slap complain. your hand. Yeah. Oh, I think you're totally right. Uh, I, yeah, I think that I think that it would be easier to yeah you know, to plant evidence or fabricate evidence or, or to, just to be a you know a rogue uh, you know corrupt prosecutor in a smaller town or community versus trying to do that in a you know, you know today got, got today, eyes you know. on you yeah. Right, L.A. or, you know, even Chicago. Not saying that it doesn't happen because uh, you know, we know that there's still a lot of... But you're looking, look at the case of Geronimo Pratt. Every time he'd appeal, it would go to the same judge who was in, mm -hmm. on, in on the screwing from the beginning. It only right. happened that when it went to a different judge finally, by some divine error, that that judge took a look at it and went, what the hell's going on here? And uh, they finally, right. you know, but if it kept going back to that same judge, it kept hitting that same wall... Yeah, I had a case about 20 years ago. It was a really odd. Uh, it was an unusual murder case out of Indiana, and I think the, the fellow is probably still in prison if he hasn't died already. But uh, it was it was it was a similar case like that where it was a controversial murder conviction. It was a uh, it was a uh, it was a fellow named Ricky Joyner, and uh, and the the woman was he had dated the woman, and her body turned up in the Amish in the Amish County, which is basically, you know, just past Elkhart County. And there was there was kind of a shady cop that worked on the case. And and the thing was is that Joyner may have did the crime, but there was, the evidence really wasn't there to get a conviction. And and this was in those the time period where you had a lot of that junk science going on, guys. Yeah. So they brought in this they found the prosecutor found a guy that was like a bag. BAG, like a bag expert, and this and this bag expert claimed that he went through the evidence and found that this bag, this this bag that was wrapped around the murder victim's neck, 
Sandy Hernandez matched the same bag as it was uh, as the one that was found in Ricky Joyner's um, kitchen. And that basically the two were connected to each other at one point in time. And uh, so this bag expert, you know, kind of sealed the deal, so to speak, and got the conviction. But uh, the case was thrown out. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court had overruled the conviction and basically didn't feel the defendant got a fair trial the first time around. And lo and behold, the case goes back to the same judge. Right. And uh, and he, he assigns it to himself. And and and, and, the, and the and the guy had a really good. I thought he was he had some really good local defense attorneys that really believed in his innocence. Uh, Tom Leatherman was the lawyer, and I just remember Tom. You know, was very respectful because he practiced in front of this judge. You know, for twenty years, and uh, you know, but obviously believed in his client's innocence or that. The evidence didn't prove his client was innocent. And he was very respect- respectful and asked that the case be assigned to a different judge. You know? Right. <laughs> and Judge Duffin was like, nope, nope, nope. it's going to stay with me. I could be fair. You know, I'm, and, and so the case stayed with Judge Duffin, and uh, another jury heard the evidence, and, uh, and, and Joyner was convicted of murder the second time around, and that's 20 years ago now, so. Yeah, it's, uh, those are rough. Would you have to go back for a new trial or winds up being the same game as before? I've seen that happen more than once. Oh, yeah, and and, the, and you could tell. I could, I mean, you could just tell from Judge Duffin was very proud. He had been on the bench 20, 25 years at that point in time. He was really the senior judge. And there's no doubt that it stung him and embarrassed him, the fact that he had the Indiana Supreme Court you know, overrule him on a high-profile murder case. Yeah. You know, and because this is Indiana. They don't do that. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, right, you know, conservative court for the most part. So they don't overturn murder convictions very often over there, you know. So, uh, it must so have been pretty blatant for them to do it. Exactly. So uh, it just, uh, like I said, part of me, I always struggled with that one. I mean, I, I did see the, I mean, I did see, you know, where he, the, the guy could have did the, the crime, but I also was was like the fact that uh, that there was strong circumstantial evidence pointing, you know, you know, to some other guy that she had been, uh, you know, dating or, you know, romancing with that also could have did the crime as well. So who knows? Yeah, we had uh, Willis Wilson on the program years ago. See, about 12 years ago. He was on Oprah also, not the woman, the show. And uh, <laughs> we went to the bump. Uh, he, was, uh, he was arrested for uh, a rape and uh, holding a knife to this woman's throat and having her perform a variety of fun sexual acts. And he, it wasn't him. Uh, but they they put him in a lineup, and he was the only one in the lineup with a beard. <laughs> Excuse me. The only one. (laughs) Okay. Uh And the witness says, yeah, that's him, the guy with the beard. Well, it wasn't him. The thing is, is they kept trying to cut a deal with him. You know, if you look at, they were trying to pin seven murders on him. He was totally innocent of everything. This went on Uh forever. And he wouldn't make a deal. Finally, it went to trial. Well, it took 45 minutes for the jury to find him not guilty, and the, uh, the judge says, Son, you've been through hell. Let me take you across the street and buy ice cream. Well, after the, <laughs> after the trial, he happens to be in a bar, and who walks in but the real guy, which he's able to recognize because of the accurate description down to the last detail of what's wrong with the guy's teeth, the kind of shoes, and he recognizes this is the real guy. And he strikes up a conversation with him, and now he's convinced this is the guy. He calls the cops and says, the real guy is right here, right now. They didn't care. (laughs) He says, yeah, Yeah. right, thanks a lot. 
It's one of those. I've, I've seen that in too too many cases over the over the years that uh, the last thing some some departments want to do is reopen a case that they've already been proven to uh, have, have bungled or gone wrong or 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 lost, uh, you know, because uh, yeah, the evidence wasn't very strong to begin with, and there was probably a good chance somebody else did the crime. Yeah, I've seen some. Uh, well, we all have seen some real bizarre ones. If you work in the field of true crime, you get some really horrifying stories of some guy who drives home, parks his truck, someone steals his truck, commits crimes, drives it back, and parks it, and they come and get him, the guy who's asleep. <laughs> 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 well, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I still think one of the best ones, I think you had me on to talk about that book, too, but the Dixie Shanahan case, the woman that left her husband's oh, body, yeah, the in, dead her bo- dead body in the dead body in the bedroom for God knows how long. Yeah, a year and a half, yeah. Yeah. Well, as long as she I kept a lot of those little deodorant things out there. <laughs> yeah, they're still airing that house out as we speak, so. Oh, boy, I bet they are. A year and a half that body sat there. What, a guy came to do the meter readings or something and looked through the window? Right, you got it. You got a good memory, yeah. Yeah, it was, and it was the middle of wintertime, I think, and you saw, the, yeah, I mean, the windows were wide open all winter, uh, you know, and Iowa winters are pretty uh, pretty rough, so. Yeah, uh, uh, you got to get that smell that out of there. the first place. Yeah, my husband's been sleeping a long time. <laughs> Dixie's Last Stand but, uh, is the name of that one, folks. You can buy it, read it, believe it. Great story, tragic story. And then, of course, you got... Yeah, I think he weighed about 40 pounds by the time they dragged yeah. it. And I'm not kidding, actually. Uh, I think it was like 38 pounds uh, is what they said uh, he weighed uh, when they uh, pulled out his remains in a, in a garbage bag or two. Oh, so. God. Then you had all those those six people that went to prison who were innocent? Yeah, the uh, you know, the Beatrice Six uh, folks. Uh, the, yeah, the, the Fairy Justice book uh, that I did a couple years back. Uh, the uh, Yeah, that, that may be the biggest case in the country as far as the total number of people that were wrongfully convicted all of the same crime. And uh, and again, that was, like you just said, that's that's your typical small town, uh, you know, police department case that gets messed up. And, uh, and th- there were still a lot of people in that town that struggled to come to grips with the reality because most of the individuals really weren't, uh, um, you know, um, they didn't have halos over their heads. Right. I mean, they were kind of the dregs of society, you know, from that town. But they weren't murderers or rapists or, or armed yeah. robbers. Yeah, but they, 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 they will bring them from central casting, and they'll, they'll fit the bill. You know, yeah, I mean, they would have been the people that Johnny Cash would have hung around with, yeah. you know, and stuff, <laughs> too, you know. Yeah. But, but, uh, but that's the, yeah, but they were just basically rounded up and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and just uh, scared to death uh, of, of getting the electric chair in Nebraska. So a lot of them just pled guilty. Oh, yeah. Thinking that if they didn't plead guilty, they were going to, you know, get fried. Yeah, you know, so. it's kind of hard to take back a confession, as a lot of people have found out. They think, well, I can straighten this out later. No. No, you can't. I know. That's the thing that, uh, even though it's not physical evidence, but the for whatever reason, it's always been that way. Uh, you know, the oral confession is is still considered one of the. It's probably more important than DNA evidence to a lot of police officers. They, I mean, just the fact that if you if somebody implicates themselves or confesses to the crime, um, that's considered the most important. Uh, you know, thing. And, and about, yet, and yet, homicide detectives are trained not to automatically believe the words of an eyewitness. Sure. Right, and you and I both know, and then I think police do too. Oftentimes, an eyewitness is your most unreliable. Yeah, 
you know, I mean, as far as all the levels of evidence or ways you can put together an investigation, an eyewitness, you know, you know, oftentimes uh, can be the most, and, and sometimes it's not you know, intentional, it's just because people's memories can play tricks on them, you know, yeah. or they don't remember a fact that they know that, that they're asked about a week or two or, or years later, and then anyone, now all of a sudden they have to re-remember. And if anyone talks to them about it, the memory can be influenced. That's mm-hmm. true. Right. Yeah. Depending on how you ask the question, if I if I ask you, I'm like, now, Mark, my shirt was red, right? You know, that's a lot different than me asking you, now, Mark, what color shirt am I wearing? You know, which is an open-ended question. So, uh, just the suggestibility of how the question comes down. You know. Right. Um, and you want to be cooperative. <laughs> right. That's a it's a rough situation. Uh, it's just really really difficult in in this county here in Los Angeles. There are an estimated 1,000 false confessions a month here in L.A. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. Well, I've been confessing to be the Zodiac killer for years. <laughs> yeah, no one paid any attention to it. <laughs> I've, I've been confessing to being John Bonnet Ramsey, but, no one, but the tutu doesn't fit, so no one believes me. Well, you know, but you do have great legs. <laughs> yes, that's true. I'll be in a miniskirt on Santa Monica Boulevard raising money for rent. <laughs> Why would you need money for a play? (laughs) Where were we? Oh, yeah, I remember where we were. Uh, Who's the woman on the cover of Wrecking Crew? Uh, That's Kathleen Zellner, and uh, that's, uh, you know, the attorney for Steve Avery. And, I mean, she's she's done a really good job as far as getting to the bottom of, uh, you know, basically taking the case apart and uh, really reworking it from scratch The the problem that she's up against is that she's up against the state of Wisconsin, and uh, and Democrats and Republican politicians alike just really don't want Steve Avery to to get a new a new trial or to really give him or Brendan, uh, you know, um, what most people believe is they you know, probably don't also don't want to give him thirty five million dollars. Well, yeah, and times probably two now, you know, or whatever yeah. uh, it'll be worth after uh, after you know. A murder conviction on top of that. Yeah, um, that, that adds so, some uh, value to it. But I keep thinking about yeah. Geronimo Pratt and his, what was it, $16.5 million that the FBI paid him for 25 years of his life, for 27 years, most of it spent in solitary confinement for a crime he didn't do. And, you know, and admitting that they framed him. You can't get, no matter how many millions they give you, you can't get that part of your life back, ever. I know, it's just so sad. And that's, I, I think, probably the worst thing that I think could ever happen to a human being, I think, is to be wrongfully convicted of a you know, heinous crime and just to get thrown away, you know, end up in a penitentiary. It's just so hard to get out of that situation. And like you said, with Pratt, even even though now we know that he's innocent and we know that he was framed and he got get a, you know unbelievable amount of money, I'm sure if he could just go back and, and live his life as a normal human being without getting a nickel, he'd be happier. Case, he would probably, yeah, he'd be fine, be fine working at a Seven Eleven and uh, you know, or whatever, just doing whatever. Yeah, you know, well, he, he was going to, to he was life. going to college up in San Francisco when they came and arrested him for murdering someone in L.A. When he was up there, right. you know, excuse me, I was I wasn't even in town. And his lawyer, who happened to be Johnny, Johnny Cochran, he says, kids, says, this should be a slam dunk. You weren't even in town. You know, you couldn't have done it. He goes, you don't know what you're up against. 
What do you think we need to do, though? I mean, guys, as far as how do, how do we change the mindset of the public, like you brought up earlier, to get them to realize this stuff happens more often than, than they realize? Um, um, there's, there's so much information overload in the world today that, that people have become complacent, and they pick... Uh, a particular outlet for the information and don't deviate from it. And they let all the other noise go. And it becomes really difficult to change a public attitude when a significant portion of the population discounts a delivery mechanism. You have, an, you have half the country that completely mistrusts mainstream news. So if mainstream news were to pick this up and go, look, there, you know, you have, uh, you know, 155,000 a year convictions, and 30% are uh, misconduct, and they will, they will completely ignore it as a hoax. Yeah, fake news. Yeah, so I, I, I have no idea what you would think. Yeah. yeah. Hi, it was a pleasure having you back on, sir. Yeah, it's a delight. Wrecking Crew. So Buy it, read it, believe it. Buy all those other books, too, they're all really good. Thanks, John. Have you back again soon. Thank you. Uh, Burl. Yeah. What the hell's next? Oh, Magic Man Adam on the Demons Executives live on the Lightning Lounge on Outlaw Radio. Live.com. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, when the world declines in righteousness, you know what happens then, don't you? We ignore it. <laughs> this is True Crime Uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear program. is produced by Magic Matt Allen, a true programming genius. Our fact checker is Mark C.G. Boyer. Our co-host is not here again today. He's got deep-rooted family problems he's taking care of. More power to him. That's a line from... Uh, I have a feeling, Burrow, that yeah. he's going to have family problems. Yes, until, unfortunately, his mother goes to the great beyond. Sad story. Uh, well, you know another sad story is prosecutorial... I can't even say it. Prosecutorial misconduct. No, yes, prosecutorial misconduct. Did you know there are four kinds of prosecutorial prosecutorial misconduct? I bet John Farrick knows. I like John Farrick. He writes cool books. Like some of my favorite true crime books written by John Farrick. And I think we have him on the line. Hey, you on the line like a mackerel? Hey, Burl. Good to hear from you again. How you doing? Better and better every day in every way, as Emil Kuwait would say. Uh, you and I both have a strange obsession. Prosecutorial misconduct. <laughs> yeah, we've certainly had our share of books uh, that have dealt with, uh, yeah. with some of those issues. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, I was just telling Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, that the fact that there are four kinds, it's kind of like, you know, trick cereal. You know, you got orange, orange, lemon, yellow. <laughs> They're magically delicious. There they are, yeah. Uh, offering inadmissible evidence in court, suppressing evidence from the defense, encouraging deceit from witnesses, and bluffing, threats, or intimidation. Well, we can find all of those. <laughs> you don't have to look far. We can... I'll tell you, John, years ago, I don't know how many years ago, it was quite a while back, several years, uh, got a book in the mail 
with a weird, weird cover on it. It's bright green by Michael Griesbach. Oh, jeez. Okay. I know where you're going. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it was about this uh, Avery case, which read really weird, so I had Michael on the show. And uh, he laid this whole thing out. I said, that's the weirdest damn story I've heard in ages. And then we got into an argument about phase two, in which Doris gets her oats. Uh, no, phase two in which uh, <laughs> in which he's arrested again. We're talking about Stephen Avery. Now, let me get this straight. We put the lime in the coconut. Back in 2016-17, uh, you were working for USA Today Networks, Wisconsin? Yes, that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were writing about the Stephen Avery thing. Right, so you were in on from the right all the all the time. I was probably having uh, nightmares, <laughs> dreams, uh, probably once or twice a week about the case too. You know how that goes, but yeah, uh, anyhow, I, I do. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the sidelights of being a true crime author. Is you have nightmares about your books, <laughs> right? Like Phil Champlain and everything. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what did you what did you discover in your <laughs> in your adventures in the world of Avery? And it was interesting, too, because, yeah, I was familiar with Mike Griesbach uh, just from my, my time up in Wisconsin and uh, and uh, had, had familiarity with his book and, uh, you know, and his, you know, version of events. And from what I remember, he basically vouched for Steve Avery as far as this is a poor guy that was really, you know, railed by the um, criminal justice system in Manitowoc County. But then... Um, Griesbach took this opposite position that uh, that the guy just happened to decide to become a deviant monster and murderer. Yeah, all of a sudden. Know, while he was waiting to get his $35 million. That would have Wasn't that an amazing him. coincidence so, just when yeah, he's about to get $35 million? Dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that he's just going to um, decide on Halloween uh, to lure uh, you know, the photographer who's basically on the property, you know, um, Every week or so, usually that Teresa Hallbuck had been out there numerous times. So, you know, it wasn't like uh, she just showed up there and uh, and and Avery just uh, his eyeballs lit up. Uh, I mean, the whole family was familiar with her. She was familiar with them and had no qualms about going out there at all. And uh, and and you're right. So Greaseback then writes this book saying, "Well, you know, this poor guy really got taken advantage of." Uh, you know, for all these years, and uh, and finally gets out of prison after serving 18 years that he didn't do. He's waiting to get 35 million dollars, and then he became a deviant monster. And well, there's some evidence that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But uh, but let's just give the local police the best of the doubt. Yeah, they yeah, got it right yeah. Let's do that. Time around. Well, that presumption of innocence goes out the window here. Yeah, and, and so far, I mean, like I said, I, I get along with Mike. I haven't seen him, you know, oh, since sure, I moved too. away from Wisconsin three years ago. I thought he's a decent guy. Yeah. I mean, he's a lot uh, more noble than uh, than Ken Kraft, yeah, um, the prosecutor in the case. But yes. uh, but I just think that Mike, Mike, you know, I mean, kind of made a fool of himself uh, with his book, and I think he knows that. Yeah, I, we we uh, he's been on the show about three times, and all three times we wind up getting an argument about phase two. <laughs> said, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I got to credit the guy for doing what he did on phase one. Yeah, I do too, because he he was in that, uh, at, at that point in time, Mike was a local attorney in Manitowoc uh, and, and, you know, at the Manitowoc County Courthouse uh, as a pros- prosecuting attorney. And he, to his credit, uh, rolled up his sleeves and was willing to call out 
corruption and uh, injustice and, uh, and and just bullshit that was going on, uh, you know, at that local police department at that uh, courthouse, and uh, and uh, it, that had to be hard to do, uh, you know, in a small town like that. And I, I'm guessing he probably got a lot of blowback and pushback, and uh, probably. Uh, yeah, decided that uh, he better take one for the team and uh, yeah. <laughs> just kind of keep his mouth shut and you know, do a you know 180 uh, from here on out. Yeah, it's a difficult situation. This whole thing of prosecutorial misconduct, when uh, I first encountered it in, in massive amounts in a case that I was working on, uh, I mean, it was a case where the judges of the courtroom would stand up and scream about it. They go, this case is going to be extended headache number 851. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. Storm out of the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the defense attorney ran against the prosecutor for his position and won. And then he wound up mm-hmm. having heavy on the appeal, having to fight against his own. <laughs> it's very wow. Strange. <laughs> very strange. I think stuff. that kind of happened in the Ryan Ferguson case out of Missouri, which just became a Netflix uh, movie by uh, Kathleen Zellner, the same attorney in this case. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. A lot of times these district attorneys uh, or prosecutors uh, have higher aspirations and uh, and you know, becoming a judge uh, or an appellate judge or a federal prosecutor is... Uh, you know, every, often, uh, every prosecutor that I've had on this show, I always ask them, have you ever been asked to prosecute someone that you believed in your heart of hearts was innocent? And they all said yes. Yeah, that's interesting. And, uh, and, that's, uh, and it takes a real prosecutor to stand up to the police. Yeah, you know, and basically uh, tell them, you know, no is no, you know, or, or enough is enough, and uh, and I'm not going to take this case because it's a bunch of BS, or you know, and uh, but there's some of these prosecutors out there, as, as you and I both know, bro, that uh, that that are deviant and sly, and uh, and and use a case for uh, you know for media gratification, and uh, and uh, I've and used a lot of really... things for media gratification, but I've never used a prosecutor, <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess we all have our kinks, but that's not one of mine. Uh, <laughs> not the prosecutor. So tell us how you got into this and, and how you happened to do Wrecking Crew, which is the book I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so I was, uh, as you point out, I was in Wisconsin uh, I, for about uh, five years at that point uh, from 2012 until uh, 2017. And, uh, and, and really, Making a Murderer came out. That was about four years ago. And really, when that uh, came out on Netflix, that was really probably the first real, you know, documentary that had come out on, on Netflix that really, you know, captured the public's attention as far as like a ten-part series. Right. And for a lot of people in Wisconsin obviously knew about the case, but but a lot of people around the country and you know around the globe, world didn't know shit about uh, the Steve Avery case, and they were really enthralled by the docu-series and uh, really wanted to learn more more and more about the case. So I was in a position where where I had I actually had some pretty good bosses at that point in time, and, and they really just gave me the green light, just told me to just work on this case full time, you know, and uh, do whatever I needed to do to uh, just keep chipping away, try to do an investigative story, usually about once a week, just to uh, really uh, you know take the case apart, and uh, and they really didn't tell me. You know that I had to you know, tr- try to find stories to you know prove Steve Avery is innocent, or find stories that you know prove that he's guilty. Just do my own thing, and the more I did, bro, you know, the more I uncovered that this really looked like the case was all you know. Um, Bunch of nonsense. Yeah, I, yeah, it, was, it just smelled really bad. I mean, the more you got into it, and uh, and 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 what was interesting is that 
I basically figured out that, that this was probably part of the culture in that police department because I just always found it amazing how the police were able to basically have a search warrant, again, from a local, I mean, a good judge or a crooked judge, it's up to, you know, the blisters of the show to determine, but uh, but, a lo- but basically they had a, they got a search warrant for Avery's salvage yard that let them stay on the property for about 10 days straight. Oh, wow. And that just never happens, even in the OJ case. I mean, I don't think the police got to stay at uh, Brentwood, uh, you know, for just 10 days nonstop. And this was, as, as, as you probably remember just from watching the show, but uh, the salvage yard itself is about 40 acres. Mm. So, it, it's, and there was about 3,000 junk, junk cars, I think, at the time on the property. So it's a big piece of property, but, but the area where they were concentrating their searches really wasn't that big. So the fact that you had the police out there for eight or nine days straight, and there was really no check or balance, there wasn't any defense attorney, you know, the Avery family really wasn't allowed to be on the property. It just opened it up for all kinds of monkey business, you know, and, uh, and corruption and evidence planting or evidence tampering. You know, by the police, and again, the, the who's who's doing the work. You know, it's it's two or three local departments, but one of the ones that's doing most of the work, you know, was the same Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office that had already rigged a case against him. You know, and got him uh, wrongly convicted 18 years earlier, and several of these same people that were out there collecting evidence and uh, and uh, directing the the crime scene were defendants in Avery's federal lawsuit that he was clearly going to win or settle for probably, you know, 10 to $15 million, uh, you know, without a doubt for the 18 years that he got screwed uh, by the sheriff in that town. Yeah, even uh, Geronimo Pratt only got 16.5 for the FBI when they framed him. Yeah, and then, like I said, I mean, I did a story, and that was one of those stories I did, too, was uh, I tracked down, like, all Innocence Project slash wrongful conviction settlements, you know, over the last... 10 years or so, and just to kind of give give, give readers for the USA Today a, a story that basically said, here's the going rate, you know, for somebody <laughs> like Steve Avery that was convicted of rape, or, you know, here's what people that have served, you know, 10 to 15 years for a murder conviction or rape conviction they didn't commit, here's here's how much they've settled for, or, you know, all over the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like I said, I think the, the average was, at that point in time, somewhere between 12 and $15 million. Um, so it was a sure thing. It was a sure thing that Avery was going to get a significant amount of money. And his case was really heating up right around the same time that Teresa Hallbeck disappeared on Halloween of 2005. The case was already two years in in the federal court system. They had just done um, video depositions of all the sheriff's personnel just over the previous month before this. And things just really were looking bad. These guys, uh, you know, just really looked terrible on the video. Uh, they, they, uh, um, nobody had a good explanation about why Steve Avery was even, you know, a legitimate suspect in the case. I mean, the guy had an alibi um, that he was at, uh, um, at a, a store in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Do it. it was called Shopco. I don't think they're even in business anymore. But, uh, but anyway, it was it was a department store slash grocery store, and. Um, you know, in spite of all that, uh, the poor guy got convicted at a jury trial, you know, um, the first time around. Right. He got railroaded by the system, you know, and uh, 
and, and somehow uh, right on the verge of him getting the settlement is when Teresa Hallbach goes missing, and then all eyes get, you know, fingers get pointed back at him. By well, didn't, who, didn't they go in well, and search his place several times? Well, like the third time, they amazingly find her keys under his uh, dresser drawer. Yeah. That was yeah, and, it was, I, it, and actually, I think it was probably, if you counted up just the fact, the number of times, Burl, that they went into his little red trailer, um, I think it was like seven times, if I'm not mistaken, because uh, they first showed up uh, to question him, uh, I think it was on November, um, it was a couple days after she had uh, disappeared, and uh, but, but by the time they... Um, by the time they actually got inside the apartment, or I mean inside the trailer, and they kept going back and kept going back, um, it was around the seventh or eighth time. And um, I mean, the trailer's and, not that damn big. You think if you were going to find no, it, you would have found it already? Several, yeah, I've been out there several times to the property. I've never been inside the trailer, but I've been at you know, I basically stood on the you know entrance right. steps of the trailer. But uh, but it's yeah, it's not very big at all, and. Uh, it's, it, 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 it literally looks just like a giant shoebox, you know, and uh, and it, the bedroom itself is very small. And, you, and again, the the same sheriff's personnel were in that same bedroom of his, you know, going through his uh, his bookcase and, uh, you know, looking around. Two days earlier, they were in there, you know, for about four or five hours they were in there again the following day and then uh you know they're coming they're walking in and out uh, over the next couple of days and then on this tuesday morning um which would again be about a week or so after she had disappeared you know lo and behold uh you know they claim that they find a key and it's a spare key you know it's it's so her real set of car keys interestingly enough well, have never been found to this day. So, I mean, whoever's a real killer, uh, you know, probably buried them or burned them or, you know, or did something right. to, to, you know, get rid of them or hide them. But, uh, but no, this was a spare key. It was an extra key, and it was on, uh, it was, it was on a small part of a lanyard. But, uh, but, you know, for them, planting that evidence in his bedroom was, was very important because then they, they were desperate for evidence. And, uh, and and now they could at least say they found some evidence that uh, can connect Steve Avery definitively to uh, the missing. Uh, that, that always amazed me because they were in there so many times and didn't find anything. How did mm-hmm. they? Fi- where did this thing come from? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it either was uh, you know manufactured at a local hardware store, or more likely just probably like a few cars that I had over the years. You know, it, you had an extra you know, key that you either kept in your you know wallet or your purse or in your glove glove compartment right. box, probably for a vehicle. I'm thinking it was probably in her glove box or you know in her in her in her vehicle. And uh, since they found her vehicle, they probably found that thing. You know, that extra key. You know, there and uh, or they found it back at her place. You know, I mean, so I mean, the point is they had several days right. to plan this out. You know, in 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 the you know, be methodical about it. So that's why, again why I think that it was so important that they found. So they kept going. Why were they going back in and in, in going back in Burl if if they had already gone through the place and you know found no evidence? I mean, the only way you'd be going back in at that point in time is to probably be snooping around to figure out how you're going to plant something if you really want to frame this guy for the crime. It's as if the millions were coming out of their personal pocket. Excuse me, personal pocket. Right. I'd be upset. 
<laughs> what happened? Well, to the these? thing is, too, it was a two for two because once you once you arrested Steve Avery for the murder, it basically destroyed his federal lawsuit that he had against the local sheriff's department, you know, and uh, you know, and the former sheriff and and the former sheriff. He had been in that office for like 20, 25 years. He had basically hired everybody that was working on this case. And, and uh, he was still kind of well-known in the community. And uh, and even in spite of the fact that, uh, you know, that he was being sued and, uh, you know, over Avery and had been, you know, determined, you know, that he had framed the guy, there still were a lot of people around town that didn't like the Averys and uh, were probably okay with uh Tom Kasork, uh, you know, not getting, you know, not going bankrupt, uh, you know, for... Uh, uh, he must be guilty of something, yeah. Bad attitude. He's guilty of something. He must be. Yeah, I mean, uh, you th- you talking about uh, Kasork, uh, the sheriff, then? No, I'm talking about how people's attitude towards the Averys. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, he right, must right. be guilty exactly. of something. That's you're right. Especially in a small town, an area like that, uh, you know, the Averys, uh, you know... I mean, I, I, I've, I've met them. I've been out on the property several times, and I think they're pretty good people. And uh, but there's a, but there's certainly some people that kind of look down upon them and uh, and thumb their nose at them, and uh, and that's unfortunate. But but I'm sure that's true in pretty much every state, of, you know, state yeah. in the United States. So, uh, but it was certainly true around Mantua County, which was a which is a you know very rural you know farming just slash blue collar mm-hmm. you know. Um, type of, uh, you know, type of community, and uh, so you have a lot of people, everybody kind of knows everybody, and, uh, you know, people pick and choose, you know, who's their friend and who's their adversary. They had that one pretty well chosen. Mm -hmm. Kind of reminds me of the the structure of the evening news. They always have something that you can feel like you're better than somebody else. (laughs) You know, my life is better than theirs. You know, I'm okay. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, I mean, uh, even the people that really didn't know the facts of the cases, you know, involving Avery or, or Teresa Hullabuck, there probably were a lot of people that were hoping mm-hmm. that he was guilty, yeah. you know, or hoping that he had something to do with it, just uh, like you said, so they could kind of feel better about themselves or, you know, just reinforce their own belief and opinion that they already had about uh, about the Avery family. Yeah, I always thought it was amazing that here he'd been at that shop going and had the receipts and everything that couldn't possibly have been, you know, anywhere else. And yet that didn't fly. I know. How do you, I mean, you just don't make those things up. And, you know, and, and granted, that was uh, 1985. So, the you know, you probably didn't have video surveillance cameras in those stores. But the fact is, you know, they bought their you know, whatever it was, their groceries or their items, uh, you know, that he bought there. I mean, there was, there was, there was physical evidence, you know, um, mitigating evidence uh, that proved his innocence and basically would have made it impossible, you know, for him, you know, to, you know, drive, make the 30, 35 mile drive back from Green Bay, Wisconsin to Manitowoc, uh, you know, and then immediately, uh, you know, <laughs> decide to go to, to drive over to the Lake Michigan, and then uh, and scope out the beach, and uh, you know, and attack uh, a prominent businesswoman while she's running in her bikini, uh, you know, going for a jog on Lake Michigan, uh, you know, uh, like that. Again, it just uh, it often occurred to me you know. to drive from Stevenson Ranch, California, there just just to chase her down, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that uh, there's no way that Steve Avery, I mean, should have even been treated as a legitimate suspect. 
you know, for that uh, for that crime. And uh, you know, as we know from making a murder, they already had a suspect. They already knew that it was probably a guy named uh, um, Allen. Um, and the Allen guy had been, uh, term or yeah, Gregory Allen. Yeah, Gregory Allen, and and he, uh, you know, had been in and out of jail and prison for, uh, you know, for other uh, burglaries and, uh, you know, as a violent sexual predator, but the sheriff decided he didn't want to go after that guy. He was fine with letting him roam around. Well, yeah, let's you know, keep him on the loose so we could do so some could, more, yeah. Right, right, just because he had a, you know, he had a vendetta or a hard on, whatever you want to say, <laughs> to, to get Steve Avery and just nail the son of a bitch, uh, you know, is, yeah. is basically the way he thought about it, so. Didn't work out too well for him in the long run. No, and uh, and that's just. The, but the one thing that still bothers me about the whole case, though, uh, Burl, is just. I mean, if you think about it, the bad guys in this case, you know, were a lot of the sheriff's personnel, and uh, and they they were able to evade justice, you know. And uh, I mean, none of them, you know, were convicted of a crime. None of them ever, uh, you know, had any monetary. Uh, judgment issued against them and uh i mean i so i guess the only good thing that happened is that everybody in the world you know knows that the mantua county sheriff's office you know has had it's more than a share of corruption that these people are pretty dirty and slimy so so and the fact that we could talk about this on your show i think is a good thing so yeah, i guess there I is so you know, a little silver lining out of it it was interesting that when avery got out of prison he was so used to being in that confined space that he went up to where they do the ice fishing and got himself... Right. Yeah, yeah, that was really weird, I thought. I mean, he was so used to being confined that being in the wide-open spaces was very uncomfortable for him. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's certainly a popular thing to do in Wisconsin, you know, to, to have those, they call them shanties, uh, you know, put them on, uh, like, Lake Winnebago, which is really big, and, uh, but, yeah, just to kind of live in that environment is a little, uh, little unusual. But that just goes to show you that... Uh, I mean, yeah, the poor guy, I mean, that became his life for about 20 years, and then just to throw him out into society, um, you know, really without any help uh, um, or psychological help. Yeah, he certainly struggled to adjust. You know, and his family, I mean, no doubt they welcomed him, were glad to have him back. But for them, you know, they still had a you know, a, a business to run and, uh, you know, and that was, that's, and, and that's a business that they had to really work hard just to, just to, you know, just to try to make ends meet, uh, you know, with that scra- scrapyard business and right. uh, tow truck, uh, you know, kind of stuff, so. Yeah, it's hard to readjust to something like that, the trauma of it, I mean, the whole thing was without psychological counseling and help and all that sort of stuff. And then on top of that, to be charged with another murder, must have just set him over the edge. I can't imagine what his state of mind would be. Yeah, and that's, again, why I always really struggled with Mike Griesbach's book as far as just how he he just decided to, you know, I mean, Mike's explanation, I think, was along the lines of, well, you know, it, you know, his time in prison must have just, you know, being in that environment caused him to snap. And uh, it's just... Uh, I just don't know why, uh, I, you know, I just don't know if, if people put pressure on Mike to write the book that way or whether he just, uh, you know, um, you know, just came up with that on his own. I don't know. It really doesn't matter. I know his book didn't do that well. So, uh, you know, um, but, uh, but it doesn't surprise me because, again, it's, it's just a, such a silly narrative. 
to to put together for a book, you know, to say the guy's innocent for the first crime, but then, uh, then but suddenly he's, he's guilty of the second one. Yeah, right. He's just you know, he's just he's just uh, he's just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. And his check, his thirty five million dollar check hasn't come in the mail yet, so he's just going to decide <laughs> just on can't Halloween wait, yeah. night uh, that he's going to commit this uh, this murder that's like the perfect murder, you know, because he's not going to leave behind any physical evidence. No blood, no hair, you know, there's no semen or anything like that in his bedroom, but yet somehow he's going to leave a spare key on the floor, you know, and the police aren't going to be smart enough to pick it up for, like, the first five or six days that they're in his bedroom looking around for evidence, but yet then they're going to realize, well, we didn't check the floor good enough. We didn't look on the floor. the bookcase, Andy, you know? So... What so? Um, That's Mark Boyer there, our fact checker. Mark, what's the question? Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Her car was found on the lot, right? Yeah, the the vehicle was found on the very, very uh, kind of back area of the lot, and uh, there's there's several at that point in time. There was like two or three different. There was a there was a few different ways that you could get a vehicle onto the Avery property. And uh, and there was at that point in time there was they called it a conveyor road. I would just call it a dirt road, just for our listeners here. But uh, basically, there was a dirt road that ran at the far far edge of their property. Um, that basically um, the property line abutted um, a quarry. So and the guy's name that ran that quarry is his, his name is Josh uh, Rodant. And so it was called Redance Quarry. And basically, yeah, where the vehicle was found was kind of near, you know, this conveyor road and uh, and the very, very edge of the Avery property. And they had a bunch of vehicles already kind of stacked up on the far edge of their property, Mark. And, uh, and this vehicle, even how it got put, it just... It, it, it was actually placed at a weird angle. It was kind of not the way the Averys, you know, had had stacked all their other vehicles. Kind of and, stood out for and that then reason. Come to, yeah. yeah, and then come to find out that you had another, which I, I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, but uh, there had been uh, um, one of the neighbors, an older gentleman that lived near nearby, near this area, and, and the night before... Hallbuck's vehicle was found, he remembered seeing a couple vehicles just driving in late at night, I think, uh, on, on, that, uh, on that conveyor road, uh, and, and he thought he saw two vehicles going in. And one coming out. But only one yeah. came out. Right. And again, at that point in time, the guy wasn't thinking about Steve Avery or Teresa Hallbuck being missing. He just noticed this was just weird, you know, or just it was unusual. That's why it caught his attention. Late at night, you know, you know two vehicles driving in, you know, to the property. You know, and uh, but again, he passed that information on to the police, but obviously, oh, they you know, really didn't go that. anywhere. No, you know, because probably, you know, possibly, you know, some of the police could have been in one of those vehicles. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, did the Averys have a car crusher? Um, a car crusher. I'm trying to remember now. Um. Did they have a car crusher? I think they did. I thought they did on the yeah on on a different part of the property. I Doesn't they don't have man. one now, if I'm not mistaken. But but I think they did uh, okay, so have you, one in a different uh, different area on the property. If you're the Averys and you take the body and burn it to the fat to, to ashes, but you leave the car. 
<laughs> I mean, if you have a car crusher, you squish it into a cube, and that's the end of it. Right. That's the way, I mean, that's the way the mafia does it, you know, and that's the way probably a lot of that's other the way people our, would do it, too. Gold, so. uh, Goldfinger uh, did. Yeah, Goldfinger. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> it worked for a James Bond movie. It would work for the Averys. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what yeah, happened so, to the... Uh, the lawsuit against Netflix. Um, nothing's become of it at all. I'm not. Sh- I'll I'll have to double check as far as whether it's been thrown out yet. Um, I just know that it's it's on the verge of either being dismissed or it's it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, I think actually it's funny you mentioned that too because uh, I think Mike Griesbach actually was the lawyer that filed that on behalf of Andy Colburn, uh-huh. the Manitowoc County Sheriff's you know, deputy, and uh, it just... Uh, Languished. I mean, it, you just can't sue somebody for, uh, I mean, for I mean, under those, I mean, for basically, you know, re, re, retelling, you know, what was already in court, um, you know, and uh, like I said, so I've talked to several people, and they've, they all told me that they kind of laughed at that lawsuit. They actually think it was probably a publicity stunt you know, from my grease back, you know, just to kind of help, you know, help him, you know, with his, uh, you know, with looks, his book sales. Uh, because, uh, I mean, you didn't, no reputable, you didn't have a reputable lawyer as far as, uh, you know, a, you know, a liable uh, law attorney take that case. It just be, to be, it's uh, hard for it to be liable if it. you're going on court certified material. And there, were, there are also some issues that I found out on uh, with the jury. How many members of the jury were affiliated with the court or the sheriff's department? Yeah, there were several. There were several, and uh, and uh, that just again, I was gone at the time of the trial. I was I was in Omaha, Nebraska, so I wasn't in Wisconsin at that point to cover the trial. But those are things that yeah, I came across after the fact, like you did, and it just blew me away. As far as like you said, the number of people that had a connection to either the yeah employees of the courthouse or sheriff. You know, were connected or family members. Yeah. You know, of Manitowoc County Sheriff's personnel. So, so his attorney and, did a yeah. horrible. And then you had the fact that that one juror, um, um, basically was excused from the jury. You know, right on the verge of del- deliberations, and he was the one that uh, was very vocal. You know, and adamant that he thought that the case against Steve Avery uh, wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't legitimate. Uh, that uh, he's, he's told him to sit down and shut up. Right. What a bizarre situation. Well, uh, so, um, his nephew was also arrested and convicted of participating Correct. in the alleged crime. What yeah. To him. Yeah, Brendan Dassey, and he's still. Uh, yeah, he's still in uh, custody too, and uh, he's probably in worse shape. Um, just uh, you know, based on the direction that his case went, because it went, um, um, they tried to appeal uh, um, on different issues and uh, and basically on the on the confession. And that case, I think, ended up in front of. The, I mean, the Supreme Court refused. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to take up the case. Yeah, so the, um, uh, a year or so ago. So uh, Brendan Dassey's best hope at this point in time to get out is actually through Steve Avery. You know, if the case against Avery gets a new trial or an evidence hearing, um, um, that's basically his his best hope at this point in time then, Mark. Was his interrogation taped? Taped? Yeah, it was videotaped. 
Right, so um, if you have the videotape, how can different courts look at the tape and, and, then, and conclude differently that his confession was coerced? Well, I mean, it was it was unfortunate uh, that I was kind of shocked, but it was a split ruling. I think first he was first you had the court of appeals that I think the Seventh Circuit out of Chicago decided two to one in Brendan's favor, and then the Wisconsin Attorney General at the time was able to you know convince the court to uh, basically have an in bank hearing, which which basically means that the entire court of appeals would hear the evidence on the case. And uh, and they did, and then it went, uh, I think, as a four to three ruling right. against Dave, or against Brendan. Um, and uh, you had a very divided court. And it kind of surprised me, actually. There was one, one justice, one of the judges, was really outspoken against Brendan as far as, and he just was totally pro-police. I just think that he really doesn't have much experience dealing with the criminal justice system as far as the shady, the shady side of it goes. And, uh, and, and that justice's name is Hamilton, and he was actually an Obama appointee. So it really surprised me that you would have somebody that, like Obama, picked for the courts, probably turned out to be about as far, you know, right wing, you know, on the, on this case specifically. You know, and kind of hard-headed, and uh, you know, and unsympathetic to Brendan, you know, than than any, anybody on the court of appeals, and it just was really, uh, um, uh, it just kind of, you know, I mean, angered me to watch, you know, you know, these this judge just really didn't seem to be uh, um, swayed by any arguments. In fact, Mark, his point was he just seemed to be convinced because, like, they basically didn't beat up Brendan. You know, they weren't like screaming at him or like you know trying to, you know. Uh, you know, um, you know, taser him or anything like that. He just thought because they were so peaceful toward him that in his mind that must have meant it was okay. Everything that happened was okay. Oh, yeah, but you it know? doesn't so work like that in real life. <laughs> especially, I know that. Especially you know that. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, the, the 1950s are over. They don't, uh, you know, tie people up to chairs anymore. Whack them with uh, a phone know, book. Like, <laughs> yeah, hit them with, uh, yeah, electric, uh, you know, electric shock therapy, you know, to get them to confess to, you know, 50 murders and stuff. I mean, those, but, but yeah, in this case, Brendan was very slow, development, developmentally disabled, you know, a slow learner, you know, and, uh, and, and they basically pretended like they were his dad and, 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 and his uncle and, uh, you know, befriended him thinking that, uh, that all he's got, all they want him to do is repeat basically, what you know, their him. version of events yeah. and, uh, and they'd have it on videotape and, uh, and, and again, no one, they knew the jury system and they knew the jury pool. They just knew that that would be good enough to win, and they were right, you know. So uh, because they got a, you know, I mean, the poor kid got stuck with a, you know, crappy judge, and, and he got that horrible attorney, that Len Kaczynski, that was selling them out that was even worse than the prosecutors in this case. Uh, you know, I, I see this all, all too often. You know, in my years of writing true crime, and so have you, I think the American public is naive as to how horrifying prosecutorial misconduct is in the United States. I, I mean, right. I was shocked. I, I think you're right on that, bro. And, uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, it only comes up as far as in the public arena, you know, when a big case like this happens, uh, you know, where people hear about it. But just, yeah, the prosecutor, prosecutors, as you know, for the most part, you know, have blanket immunity. They don't have the public doesn't have an opportunity to sue them as co-defendants in lawsuits the same way that they can 
you know, police officers or, you know, you know, you know, crime scene specialists that are faking evidence or planting evidence. Oh, yeah, you had uh, a great and, book uh, on that, too. I got to compliment you on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's, uh, it's, yeah, that, that's, uh, it's coming up, uh, that case, is, uh, not the book, but that case is coming up on the, the 10-year anniversary this year of uh, of Dave Colpin going to prison, getting convicted for planting evidence in Nebraska. Yeah, the Bloody Lies book, thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, that's, that was a hell of a story and very upsetting. I mean, if you can't trust your CSI guy, who can you trust? Right. Yeah, and that's the thing that, uh, like you said, the public too often is just naive, you know, and uh, just either doesn't want to believe this happens or or isn't doesn't have the wherewithal to understand that these kinds of things happen. But uh, but you do have people like you started out with this show, like Ken Kratz, the prosecutor in this case, a guy that was just a glory hound, really had no. You know, no, I mean, his resume wasn't anything impressive. You know, I mean, he didn't handle murder cases at all, but just based on the fact that he was a prosecutor in a small dairy, dairy community, so there wasn't much activity going on. But yet he's able to kind of use this case to constantly, uh, you know, give himself all kinds of television coverage and press and, uh, you know, and make a name for himself and then go around, you know, doing interviews with Nancy Grace you know, all the time to, uh, you know, just to build up his ego. When in reality, you have to ask yourself, is the guy just a total fraud to begin with, you know? You know, the thing about, you mentioned Nancy Grace, I had a prosecutor on here who, who said he, that uh, Nancy Grace was talking about the blood found in the car, and he goes, what blood? <laughs> <laughs> He's screaming at the TV, what are you talking about? <laughs> is, but, uh, is that trial by talk show? Right, right. Well, and, and 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 that's kind of what this case was. I think the first time around, at least the the trial for uh, for Avery on the murder case, it was kind of a trial by talk show, or at least trial by TV show, because uh, yeah, Ken Kratz, the prosecutor, had done so many TV interviews and press conferences uh, to uh, basically make it almost impossible for Avery to get a fair. Yeah, that's the real problem. If you, try, if you try to get a change of venue, that's not always going to work either, especially if it's on national television. Right. Yeah. And uh, so poor Avery, I can think of this case. Yeah, he he just he rolled with the punches, so to speak, and uh, you know, and he still gets a jury, you know, with a handful of family members or connections to the sheriff's office, and uh, you know, and the rest is history. Now. Now I was just reading an article by uh, this guy who'd been a prosecutor in uh, New Orleans. And he said, to suggest, as the court did, that internal mechanisms sanction misbehaving prosecutors is to engage in fantasy. In a prosecutorial culture that turns a blind eye to such conduct, internal accountability is simply non-existent. That's scary. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and again, it's one of those things that, like you said, people by and large aren't really talking about this on a daily basis or thinking about it uh, and uh, but yet you and I both know and Mark this too that this goes on fairly regularly and it doesn't just happen in New Orleans or Louisiana but it probably happens in every state uh, you know and it certainly happens probably in states where there's you know less news media coverage or you know or you know less of a you know, population uh, probably similar you know to a uh, Mantua County you know, just as much as it happens in a New York City, you know, or, it would, or, it or you know, Chicago. It would seem to me it would be easier in a small setting uh, to get away with it because there's no one to to, to slap complain. your hand. Yeah. 
Oh, I think you're totally right. Uh, I, yeah, I think that I think that it would be easier to yeah to plant evidence or fabricate evidence or, or to, just to be a you know a rogue uh, you know corrupt prosecutor in a smaller town or community versus trying to do that in a you know today got, got eyes on you yeah. Right, L.A. or, you know, even Chicago. Not saying that it doesn't happen because uh, you know, we know that there's still a lot of... But you're looking, look at look at the case of Geronimo Pratt. Every time he'd appeal, it would go to the same judge who was in, mm-hmm. on, in on the screwing from the beginning. It only right. happened that when it went to a different judge finally, by some divine error, that that judge took a look at it and went, what the hell's going on here? And uh, they finally, right. you know, but if it kept going back to that same judge, it kept hitting that same wall... Yeah, I had a case about 20 years ago. It was a really odd. Uh, it was an unusual murder case out of Indiana, and I think that the fellow is probably still in prison if he hasn't died already. But uh, it was it was it was a similar case like that where it was a controversial murder conviction. It was a uh, it was a uh, it was a fellow named Ricky Joyner, and uh, and the the woman was he had dated the woman, and her body turned up in the Amish. In, in the Amish County, which was basically you know just past Elkhart County, and there was there was kind of a shady cop that worked on the case, and and the thing was was that Joyner may have did the crime, but there was, the evidence really wasn't there to get a conviction, and and this was in those the time period where you had a lot of that junk science going on, guys. Yeah. So they brought in this, they found the prosecutor found a guy that was like a bag. Bag, like a bag expert, and this and this bag expert claimed that he went through the evidence and found that this bag, this this bag that was wrapped around the murder victim's neck, Sandy Hernandez, matched the same bag as it was uh, as the one that was found in Ricky Joyner's um, kitchen, and that basically the two were connected to each other at one point in time, and. Uh, so this bag expert, you know, kind of sealed the deal, so to speak, and got the conviction. But uh, the case was thrown out. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court had overruled the conviction and basically didn't feel the defendant got a fair trial the first time around. And lo and behold, the case goes back to the same judge. Right. And uh, and he, he assigns it to himself. And and and, and, the, and the and the guy had a really good. I thought he was he had some really good local defense attorneys that really believed in his innocence. Uh, Tom Leatherman was a lawyer, and I just remember Tom. You know, was very respectful because he practiced in front of this judge. You know, for twenty years, and uh, you know, but obviously believed in his client's innocence or that the evidence didn't prove his client was innocent. And he was very respect- respectful and asked that the case be assigned to a different judge, you know. Right. <laughs> and Judge Duffin was like, nope, nope, nope. it's going to stay with me. I could be fair, you know. I'm, and, and so the case stayed with Judge Duffin, and uh, another jury heard the evidence, and uh, and, and Joyner was convicted of murder the second time around, and that's 20 years ago now, so. Yeah, it's, uh, those are rough. Would you have to go back for a new trial or it winds up being the same game as before? I've seen that happen more than once. Oh, yeah, and and, the, and you could tell. I could, I mean, you could just tell from Judge Duffin was very proud. He had been on the bench 20, 25 years at that point in time. He was really the senior judge. And there's no doubt that it stung him and embarrassed him, the fact that he had the Indiana Supreme Court you know, overrule him on a high-profile murder case. Yeah. You know, and because this is Indiana. They don't do that. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, right, you know, conservative court for the most part. So they don't overturn murder convictions very often over there, you know. So, uh, it must so have been pretty blatant for them to do it. Exactly. So uh, it just, uh, like I said, part of me, I always struggled with that one. I mean, I, I did see the, 
I mean, I did see, you know, where he, the, the guy could have did the, the crime, but I also was was like the fact that uh, that there was strong circumstantial evidence pointing, you know, you know, to some other guy that she had been, uh, you know, dating or, you know, romancing with that also could have did the crime as well. So who knows? Yeah, we had uh, Willis Wilson on the program years ago. See, about twelve years ago, he was on Oprah also, not the woman, the show. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, he was uh, he was arrested for uh, a rape and uh, holding a knife to this woman's throat and having her perform a variety of fun sexual acts, and he, it wasn't him. Uh, but they they put him in a lineup, and he was the only one in the lineup with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> and the witness says, yeah, that's him, the guy with the beard. Well, it wasn't him. And the thing is, is they kept trying to cut a deal with him, you know. If you're, they were trying to pin seven murders on him. He was totally innocent of everything. This went on forever. And he wouldn't make a deal. Finally, it went to trial. Well, it took 45 minutes for the jury to find him not guilty, and the, uh, the judge says, Son, you've been through hell. Let me take you across the street and buy ice cream. Well, after the, <laughs> after the trial, he happens to be in a bar, and who walks in but the real guy, which he's able to recognize because of the accurate description down the last detail of what's wrong with the guy's teeth, the kind of shoes, and he recognizes this is the real guy. And he strikes up a conversation with him, and now he's convinced this is the guy. He calls the cops and says, the real guy is right here, right now. They didn't care. <laughs> says, yeah, yeah, right, thanks a lot. It's one of those. I've, I've seen that in too, too many cases over the, over the years that uh, the last thing some, some departments want to do is reopen a case that they've already been proven to uh, have, have bungled or... Gone wrong or 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 lost, uh, you know, because uh, yeah, the evidence wasn't very strong to begin with, and there was probably a good chance somebody else did the crime. Yeah, I've seen some. Uh, well, we all have seen some real bizarre ones. I mean, you work in the field of true crime, you get some really horrifying stories of some guy who drives home, parks his truck, someone steals his truck, commits crimes, drive it back, and parks it, and they come and get him, the guy who's asleep. <laughs> 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 well, what are you talking about? You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I still think one of the best ones, I think you had me on to talk about that book, too, but the Dixie Shanahan case, the woman that left her husband's oh, body, yeah, the in, dead her dead body in the Oh, yeah, dead body in the bedroom for God knows how long. Yeah, a year and a half, yeah. Yeah. Well, as long as she I kept a lot of those little deodorant things out there. <laughs> yeah, they're still airing that house out as we speak, so. Oh, boy, I bet they are. A year and a half that body sat there. What, a guy came to do the meter readings or something and looked through the window? Right, you got it. You got a good memory, yeah. Yeah, it was, and it was the middle of the winter time, I think, and you saw, the, yeah, I mean, the windows were wide open all winter, uh, you know, and Iowa winters are pretty uh, pretty rough, so. Yeah, uh, uh, got to get that smell that out of there. the first place. Yeah, my husband's been sleeping a long time. <laughs> Dixie's Last Stand but, uh, is the name of that one, folks. You can buy it, read it, believe it. Great story, tragic story. And then, of course, you got... Yeah, I think he weighed about 40 pounds by the time they drank yeah. it. And I'm not kidding, actually. Uh, I think it was like 38 pounds uh, is what they said uh, he weighed uh, when they uh, pulled out his remains in a, in a garbage bag or two. Oh, so. God. Then you had all those those six people that went to prison who were innocent? Yeah, the uh, you know, the Beatrice Six uh, folks. Uh, the yeah, the the Fairy Justice book uh, that I did a couple years back. Uh, the uh, Yeah, that, that may be the biggest case in the country as far as the total number. 
of people that were wrongfully convicted all of the same crime. And uh, and again, that was like you just said. That's that's your typical small town, uh, you know, police department case that gets messed up. And uh, and th- there were still a lot of people in that town that struggled to come to grips with the reality because most of the individuals really weren't, uh, um, you know. Um, they didn't have halos over their heads. Right. And they were kind of the dregs of society, you know, from that town. But they weren't murderers or rapists or armed yeah. robbers. Yeah, but they, 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 they will bring them from central casting, and they'll, they'll fit the bill. You yeah, know? I mean, they would have been the people that Johnny Cash would have hung around with, yeah. you know, and stuff, <laughs> too, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but that's the... Yeah, but they were just basically rounded up and, uh, you know, and... Uh, and and, uh, and just uh, scared to death uh, of, of getting the electric chair in Nebraska. So a lot of them just pled guilty. Oh, yeah. Um, thinking that if they didn't plead guilty, they were going to, you know, get fried. Yeah, you know, so. it's kind of hard to take back a confession, as a lot of people have found out. They think, well, I can straighten this out later. No. No, you can't. I know. And that's the thing that, uh, even though it's not physical evidence, but the for whatever reason, it's always been that way. Uh, you know, the oral confession is is still considered one of the. It's probably more important than DNA evidence to a lot of police officers. They, I mean, just the fact that if you if somebody implicates themselves or confesses to the crime, um, that's considered the most important. Uh, you know, thing. And and about, yet, police. and yet, homicide detectives are trained not to automatically believe the words of an eyewitness. Right, and you and I both know, and then I think police do too. Oftentimes, an eyewitness is your most unreliable. Yeah, you know, I mean, as far as all the levels of evidence or ways you can put together an investigation, an eyewitness, you know, you know, oftentimes uh, can be the most, and then sometimes it's not you know, intentional. It's just because people's memories can play tricks on them, you know, yeah. or they don't remember a fact that they know that, that they're asked about a week or two or, or years later, and then anyone, now all of a sudden they have to re-remember. And if anyone talks to them about it, the memory can be influenced. That's mm-hmm. true. Right, yeah, depending on how you ask the question. If I if I ask you, I'm like, now, Mark, my shirt was red, right? You know, that's a lot different than me asking you, now, Mark, what color shirt am I wearing? You know, which is an open-ended question. So, uh, just the suggestibility of how the question comes down, you know. Right. Um, and you want to be cooperative. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a rough situation. Uh, it's just really, really difficult. In, in this county, here in Los Angeles, there are an estimated 1,000 false confessions a month here in L.A. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. Well, I've been confessing to be the Zodiac killer for years. <laughs> yeah, no one paid any attention to it. <laughs> I've, I've been confessing to being John Benet Ramsey, but no one, but the tutu doesn't fit, so no one believes me. Well, you know, but you do have great legs. <laughs> yes, that's true. I'll be in a miniskirt on Santa Monica Boulevard raising money for rent. That's <laughs> a whole other what, story. Why would you need money for a play? <laughs> where were we? Oh, yeah, I remember where we were. Uh, who's the woman on the cover of Wrecking Crew? Uh, that's Kathleen Zellner, and uh, that's uh, you know the attorney for Steve Avery, and I mean she's I, she's done a really good job as far as getting to the bottom of uh, you know basically taking the case apart and uh, really reworking it from scratch. The the problem that she's up against is that she's up against the state of Wisconsin, and uh, and Democrats and Republican politicians alike just really don't want Steve Avery to to get a new a new trial or to really give him or Brendan a, 
you know, um, what most people believe is... They you know, probably don't also don't want to give them $35 million. Well, yeah, times probably two now, you know, or whatever uh, yeah. it'll be worth after, uh, after, you know, a murder conviction on top of that. Yeah, um, that, that adds so, some uh, value to it. But I keep thinking about yeah. Geronimo Pratt and his, what was it, $16.5 that the FBI paid him for 25 years of his life for 27 years, most of us spent in solitary confinement for a crime he didn't do. And, you know, and admitting that they framed him. You can't get, no matter how many millions they give you, you can't get that part of your life back, ever. I know, it's just so sad. And that's, I, I think, probably the worst thing that I think could ever happen to a human being, I think, is to be wrongfully convicted of a you know, heinous crime and just to get thrown away, you know, end up in a penitentiary. It's just so hard to get out of that situation. And like you said, with Pratt, even even though now we know that he's innocent and we know that he was framed and he got that you know, unbelievable amount of money, I'm sure if he could just go back and, and live his life as a normal human being without getting a nickel. He'd be happier. Case, he would probably, yeah, he'd be fine, be fine working at a 7-Eleven and... Uh, you know, or whatever, just doing whatever. Yeah, you know, well, he, he was going to, to he was life. going to college up in San Francisco when they came and arrested him for murdering someone in L.A. When he was up there, right. you know, well, excuse me, I was I wasn't even in town. And his lawyer, who happened to be but, Johnny you know, Johnny Cochran, he says, "Kids, says this should be a slam dunk. You weren't even in town. You know, you couldn't have done it." He goes, "You don't know what you're up against." What do you think we need to do, Joe? I mean, guys, as far as how do, how do we change the mindset of the public, like you brought up earlier, to get them to realize this stuff happens more often than, than they realize? Um. Um, there's, there's so much information overload in the world today that, that people have become complacent, and they pick... Uh, a particular outlet for the information and don't deviate from it. And they let all the other noise go. And it becomes really difficult to change a public attitude when a significant portion of the population discounts a delivery mechanism. You have, an, you have half the country that completely mistrusts mainstream news. So if mainstream news were to pick this up and go, look, there, you know, you have, uh, you know, 155,000 a year convictions, and 30% are uh, misconduct, and they will, they will completely ignore it as a hoax. Yeah, fake news. Yeah, so I, I, I have no idea what you would do. Yeah. yeah. Hi, it was a pleasure having you back on, sir. Yeah, it's a delight. Wrecking Crew. Buy it, read it, believe it. Buy us all those other books, too. They're all really good. Thanks, John. I'll be back again soon. Thank you. Uh, Burl. Yeah. What the hell's next? Oh, Magic Man Allen on the Demons Executives Live in the Light of the Lounge on Outlaw Radio. Live.com. Oh.